Hello, and welcome to another Crisis Conversation, live from the Better Life Lab. Today, we're going to be talking about family caregivers. One in five Americans actually takes care of another family member or loved one. It's an intensive, uh, incredibly difficult job. Um, many of these caregivers are invisible. They've been left out of public policy. And today, we're going to talk about what needs to change. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a new web page that we've set up so that you can find all of our previous crisis conversations. Please go to newamerica.org slash betterlifelab and put dashes between better life and lab. That's newamerica.org slash betterlifelab with dashes. You can also find a link to subscribe to our newsletter, Your Life Better, on that page. We'd love to have you as a subscriber and keep informed about the latest in work, care, and gender equity news. So let me get to our guests for today. We've got Jessica Mills. She's a family caregiver in Georgia who put off her own plans for college in order to care for her mother with dementia. We've got Debbie Simmons-Harris. She's a family caregiver in Minnesota who had to stop working to care for her son who has required complex medical care for more than two decades. Jennifer Olson is an epidemiologist by training, and she's the executive director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving, which promotes the health, strength, and resilience of caregivers throughout the United States. Karen Lindsay Marshall is the director of advocacy and engagement at the National Alliance for Caregiving, and she's been a family caregiver herself. So, uh, Debbie, let me start. Let me start with you. You know, one of the stories that I have heard as we were preparing for this episode, is that many family caregivers are really faced with a really difficult choice, uh, either taking the time that you need to give care. And many um, workplaces uh, don't offer the flexibility or support, so it's really a choice, work or care. Yeah, tell us your story. Okay, well, it was a surprise for us. We kind of entered this journey unexpectedly. Um, our youngest son was born prematurely, and um, just seven months. I was seven months long, actually. And um, you hear a lot about um, morbidity and mortality in um, African-American women when it comes mm -hmm. to pregnancy and wonder about some of the reasons for, for those statistics, um, the high statistics. And um, in my case, um, it was a situation where I knew that something was wrong, but I couldn't get my providers to listen to me. Mm. And so when I questioned um, whether or not I should have an additional ultrasound because the baby had stopped moving and his personality, so, so to speak, had changed. Um, my my primary physician, or OBGYN, had said that we I'd already had an ultrasound once, and that's what insurance would pay for it. And so he said we wouldn't uh, try to attempt to have another. So what happened was um, about a day before Josh was born, I had complications, went into the hospital. Um, an African-American OBGYN had, uh, was on call for our physician's group. And um, he said, if the mother says something is wrong, I, I believe it and, mm -hmm. and, and I hear you. And so when we went in, he set up a bi-level ultrasound saw that our son, Josh, was in trouble and um, had someone from Mayo rush um, in to, um, to actually perform a C-section um, emergently. Um, but just as that was going to happen, um, our physician's group actually came back from a holiday party and they told him he could go. And they told me that um, 
they would just hold off on everything because um, it was the weekend and they would just wait until Monday when more departments were open. So what happened in the meantime, that day in between, um, Josh went into distress. He had an intraventricular grade four and subdural um, brain hemorrhage on the day in between. And so subsequently, um, he has uh, cerebral palsy, microcephaly, hydrocephalus, global developmental delay, uh, tracheal laryngeal malacia. Um, sometimes I forget all his diagnoses because I don't really think of him in that way because he's a delightful, handsome, content young man. But um, basically in our mom's circles, in order to get through this, you have to maintain a sense of humor. So we just call it the works. And so he's the had works. complex Yes. So he's had complex medical needs um, his entire life. We basically had had a pediatric intensive care unit in our home uh, the entire time. So how old is how old is Josh now? And and sort of like on a day to day basis, what is it like to what you know, what do you need to do to take care of him? Um, So when we brought Josh home, we were told um, to call the coroner because if we did it when he died, which you were told would happen uh, two months later. And then they took that back and said it would be two weeks later. Oh, man. Um, um, so that's all the time that we, we got. Um, he's actually 27 now. <laughs> so they, they thought he wouldn't last two weeks, and he's lasted 27 years. That's amazing. 27 years. So, so what's, it, what's it like? What does it require to take care of him on a day-to-day basis? So now Joshua, is he has a trach. He has a feeding tube. He's on 24-hour feedings through a pump. Um, he's non-ambulatory. Um, he's incontinent. Um, he doesn't, he's not verbal, but he's vocal. So he, he makes um, sounds around his trait. Um, and in, in the context of the sounds that he's making, we know what he's saying. Um, he has a very um, interesting and kind of um, unique personality, but he needs suctioning actually 24 hours a day. Um, he's on about three, four, five pages of medications a day. Wow. Um, he needs to be repositioned every two hours. Um, he is now on a ventilator, um, up to about eight hours a day. You know, it's so funny when you're a mom, you can't even, it's, it's like part of my own body. So I can't even actually separate it from my own, my own function every day. But, um, he basically needs 24-hour high-level nursing care. So we have two full-time nurses, and we just hired on uh, another part-time nurse, which was a difficult decision in this era of COVID because that nurse also works in one of the main hospitals here in the Twin Cities. That's what I was going to um, ask you. Is like, So you've got all of this, you know, pages and pages of medication, all of this in, intensive, you know, care that, that, that he requires at home. So what's it been like during the COVID crisis? What, what additional measures have you had to take? What have you been afraid of because of the pandemic? It's really a struggle um, because to fill in those 24 hours, you know, we just, we have nursing, we don't have any nursing on the weekends for the most part. So it's family just rotating those 24 hour rounds. My, my sons, my husband and myself, we, and then the nurses that we do have are just like day, one night nurse and, and then one daytime nurse. And then my brother was helping us out. But the anxiety that it was producing to have so many people mm-hmm. coming in and out of my home and then wondering like what everyone's exposure was when they were away from my house. 
and knowing that every contact that every single person made outside of the home was another risk of exposure for Joshua. Mm-hmm. And he has so many access points that we don't think about. He's got a trait. Right. You know, he's um, he's just at such a high risk and he's so medically fragile. Right. And in addition to that, my husband is a career Marine and was exposed to Agent Orange. And so because of his exposures, he has a, a long list of conditions that put him in every single risk category as well. Wow. So, um, Jessica, let me turn to you. You know, you were also faced with a difficult choice when it came to um, thinking about, you know, being a family caregiver. You know, can you tell us about your your choice and then how, how COVID is also impacting uh, your caregiving? Yeah. So, um, I have been taking care of my mother. She has dementia for about the past 10 years now. Um, I'm 29 years old, so this started when both of us were relatively young. She had just turned 50. Um, Mm. I had just moved away from home after graduating high school to start college. Did about two years of school before we started noticing that mom was having issues, remembering little things like where she put her keys, things like that. Um, And she was still working full-time, so I eventually moved back to help her navigate just the whole process of even getting the diagnosis because, like I said, with her age being only 50, Dementia was the last thing anyone was expecting. So we had to go through a whole range of tests and whatnot to rule out everything else pretty much before we said, okay, yes, this is what we're dealing with. And from there had to decide, okay, so how are we going to manage that? Um, And I'm an only child. So between my dad and I, we decided and have been very fortunate to be able to care for her in the home. Um, And that's what we plan on doing. She's in the later stages now and isn't able to communicate or like Debbie was saying, she's non- She's not communicating, but she's vocal. She's, you know, mm-hmm. she'll still, she has ways of letting you know what she needs. And it's hard to know what somebody's needing by that unless you really know that person. So we really, knowing her as well as we do, we're able to give her such great care and keep her at home with us where we know she's comfortable and she's happy. And it's just, like I said, we've been very fortunate to be able to do that so far. But my dad had to go into early retirement. Um, I worked as long as I could part-time until her needs just became where she's needing care 24-7 and neither one of us can work now. Um, Mm. That's even with having hospice nurses and whatnot coming in a couple times of the week. It's just still a lot of the care falls on us. Um, And yeah, it's it's difficult. So so how are you you able to survive? How are you able to kind of like make ends meet and, you know, particularly now with the pandemic raging? So... I haven't been working in the past two years and we were lucky enough to have savings that have gotten us through. Um, And that's just not, unfortunately not going to last much longer. Um, So I have been looking into, I've started school again online and I'm looking into however I can get back into the workforce in whatever way possible um, just to help. Because if I'm, if there's some sort of income coming in from me, then we can, you know, potentially hire more help. And then that just really the strain on both me and my dad and just makes everybody's jobs easier. Mm. Um, so, so Karen, let me, let me turn to you at this point. Can you help put Debbie and Jessica's experiences sort of in a broader context? Jessica talks about how they're relying on family savings, but you know, you, there's other research that shows that so many American families, they wouldn't even be able to scrape together $400 in an emergency. That's, that's quite a bit of a burden that, that, um, that we're placing on a lot of families. Can you paint the, the larger landscape of what family caregivers are, uh, you know, what do they, what are their challenges? 
challenges before COVID and now during COVID. Yes, um, so much of what you said, Jessica, and what you said, Debbie, resonates with both me as a family caregiver, a former family caregiver, and the caregivers in our advocacy network. Um, so thank you for sharing those those deeply personal stories. So many elements like of those stories, like I said, resonate across the caregiving spectrum from the types of tasks that you have to help perform, like medication management, which is a very difficult job, complex nursing duties, coordinating care. And most of uh, 61% of caregivers are in the workforce. So they're doing all of these things while they're also trying to stay employed. So there's no wonder that caregiving has a huge impact on an individual's personal health, their mental health, as well as their financial health. So a lot of times I think we think of caregiving as a personal issue or a family issue, and it is. It's deeply personal, and it is something that is very multi-layered with the caregiver's experience, the experience of the care recipient, and other members of the family. But it's also a public health issue, mm -hmm. um, which is why now, especially in the time of COVID, it's so important for us to to look at these issues. And fortunately, and I, I say that ironically, um, the pandemic has pull the curtain back to reveal so much of what caregivers have been going through both mm -hmm. before and during COVID. So if you imagine these issues that both Jessica and Debbie just mentioned, they're experiencing them both before COVID began a few months ago and now. And that's the same for caregivers across the country. Um, 53 million caregivers to be exact, according to research that we recently um, published with, the, um, with AARP. That research was pre-COVID data. With everything that's going on, the number of caregivers is increasing, and it could be expected to increase. And so can the personal, mental, and financial health issues that I just mentioned. Right. So, Jennifer, let me turn to you at this point. Um, you know, this is this is an issue that you've been looking at as an epidemiologist, but also this is something that the, the Rosalind Carter Institute has been very deeply involved in. Can you talk some about some of these broader issues, how COVID is playing out? What are you all looking at and, and most concerned about right now? I think the biggest area of concern right now from the caregiver landscape is exactly as Karen brought up and Jessica and Debbie are highlighting, caregivers are not seen as a constituency. The numbers of caregivers continues to grow. And yet caregiver support, it's usually the sub part on a menu rather than mm -hmm. being kind of the dedicated focus. We think of caregivers as a critical element for our social se sector, our healthcare sector, and yet we don't see very many opportunities where the caregiver is the center of that conversation. They're usually the afterthought. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit of, you know, I know that you just recently wrote a letter to Congress talking about some of the challenges that caregivers face with the pandemic and what they really need and what do they need long term? I think there's a few categories. The first being uh, caregivers conditions, mental health and physical health needs to be uh, an area of concern. How often, ask Jessica and Debbie, if when they go to the doctor's office, if the doctor ever asks them if they're a caregiver, you get asked about you know how much you're sitting during the day or if you're eating the right fruits and vegetables. But we know that caregiving impacts people's health and yet we don't engage in those conversations. So what we see in COVID is a chance to bring the caregiver conversation out. Mm -hmm. The example I've been giving is at work right now, people are more comfortable to say something like, oh, I have to go pick up groceries for my loved one or I have mm -hmm. to take care of, you know, get a prescription for my grandma. 
that's becoming a more water cooler, although in the realm of Zoom, maybe water cooler isn't the right frame, (laughs) but uh, the water cooler conversation, you know, how can we continue to get that conversation out and to say these issues are, exist, caregivers are part of every community you could think of, every sector group you could think of, there's caregivers in that community. Every employer has caregivers Mm -hmm. in their workforce. Every store has caregivers shopping in their aisles. You know, do you think that it's something that we haven't paid a lot of attention to because there is this assumption, you know, kind of through the years that, well, somebody's just at home taking care of them, sort of like this old kind of kind of an outdated breadwinner homemaker notion that they're like, I think Heather Boucher says the American wife or, you know, there is sort of like the woman supposed to be at home. And and of course, we know that was never true for all families in the United States, but that within policymaker circles, um, you know, that that is a notion that's stuck. Do you think that that's part of the reason why these issues have not been sort of front and center until now? In some ways, yes, because the word caregiver conjures up a vision in a lot of ways of a an older person, usually an older woman, taking care of an older man, very distinctive visual of like, oh, that's the support that's supposed to happen. Whereas as we continue to hear, the caregiver story is part of a variety of stories um, and people are coming up with new and different ways to be distance caregivers, to care for uh, the person they have a divorce from. I mean, caregiving is kind of transforming right now um, mm-hmm. in a way. And, and I think the image that people have in their mind is that kind of single image of what it means. And I think the tasks are changing. You know, I think um, people think of kind of tucking someone in or cooking them a meal uh, as kind of these very discrete tasks. But you've heard there's obviously really complex medical tasks. There's, uh, There's tasks related to protecting someone from financial fraud. There's all sorts of elements of the work. The tasks are changing. The functions are changing. And caregivers are 3D beings. And we kind of continue to have a one dimensional view. So let's, you know, so Karen, if I could go back to you, you know, um, so what are some things that caregivers really need if they've been sort of this invisible force that we've all relied on? Um, you know, I, I think in, in the um, the report that, that you mentioned with the AARP, there's discussions of workplaces and work cultures need to be much more um, flexible and uh, able to adapt to people and their caregiving needs. You know, when you just look at public policy, we don't support families very well in this country. And even the emergency paid family leave bill uh, that Congress passed, it exempted People like Debbie and Jessica, you you don't get paid family leave or in, uh, under the you know the emergency provisions. So Karen, what are some things that family caregivers really could use, and like you know how do we make them more visible, but also how do we create the supports that they need? Well, according to our research, forty five percent of um, of caregivers report having been financially impacted by caregiving, um, and like I said, sixty one percent work in addition to their caregiving. So it's very important in addition. To to uh, policies like the paid leave um, policies for family caregivers that we've been talking a lot about, especially during the um, the COVID area, that we look at a comprehensive package of financial and workplace supports that can help family caregivers. And they can range from paid leave to tax credits for expenses that um, associated with caregiving. Um, and they can even go beyond things like taxes uh, and tax incentives to employer culture. Um, Mm -hmm. These conversations that Jennifer mentioned around the water cooler, they need to continue. We need to recognize caregiving as a a very important role in our society that really contributes to the fabric and structure of how we live. Um, And that goes for 
you and me, that goes for our coworkers and our employers, our neighbors, and it also goes for us within the caregiving community. The more that we can self-identify and think of ourselves as more than, oh, I'm a, I'm a daughter. In my case, I was a daughter, and my caregiving was part of my responsibilities as a daughter, which I cherish very much. Mm-hmm. But it's very important to also think of myself as a caregiver who plays a role in a public health system, who has a seat at the table when healthcare decisions are being made. And it's mm-hmm. so important for people on the other side of that table to recognize that role. Right, that you're that you're an active active part of of whatever plan. Uh, needs to happen. So, Debbie, um, you wanted to talk a little bit about acute care. Uh, can you talk about that? And then also, you know, from your from your role as a caregiver, what do you see? Like, what needs to happen? What? Uh, how do you need to be supported? How, what would help you overcome some of the challenges that you've been facing? I, I think there's a, a profound need to profile our stories because I don't think people realize. Um, in addition to the weariness. There is joy in all of this, too, because it, it impacts our lives so profoundly um, and, and expands our lives so profoundly. Um, but then, as well, there's an entire population of us who start when with our children who are considered chronic care, but they're kind of the, Josh is like the first generation because of technology, um, who are con- acute care but have lived as long as chronic care patients. Mm-hmm. So, so, so in addition to the custodial care that, that we provide, you're doing like high level nursing assessment and interventions that would be done perhaps in an intensive care environment. Mm-hmm. So um, because of his autonomic dysfunction, he might have a heart rate of 34 at one part of the day. And then, maybe an hour later, it might be 180. Wow. And so there are assessments and interventions that you have to do and decisions you have to make, especially now in this era of COVID, because you don't want him to go into a hospital. And there are a lot of issues about transition where we don't know really where to even take our, our, our kids who are kind of in between where they've only been at children's hospitals. And so I think there's a, a profound need to profile our stories and educate people about who we are and what we do on a day-to-day basis because it is so challenging. And when Josh was born, it was the same time that the Family Medical Leave Act was legislated. And so here we are, we're still fighting for paid medical leave. And Mm -hmm. at the time, um, my family was trying to go from uh, two incomes to one income, which was pretty financially devastating. But I carried the, the main insurance to provide for Joshua's needs. And my husband worked on contract. And then finally, um, just at chipping away as much as we could by my taking time off to be at the hospital with him because he had 10 surgeries the first year. Wow. Um, and in countless hospitalizations, I had to resign from my job. So like Karen was saying, we're such a huge part of the entire healthcare system. We need to survive. So, Jessica, in in your situation, you know, what do you what would you need, or what you know, what would help support you and your family in the caregiving that that, that you're giving to your mother right now? So, what I really hope that people take away just just a better idea of the overall scope of challenges that caregivers do face on a daily basis, and especially as Debbie mentioned, when it's carried out long term, 
Um, but just exactly like she said, I think a lot of people know about the negative sides of caregiving, but there's so many positive and rewarding things that come with it as well. So I really do want people to be aware of that so that they're maybe not so afraid if they ever have to be, you know, think, hey, do I need to take on caregiving for a family member or a loved one at this point? I think maybe if they knew that there was enough support and resources out there that maybe they would be more willing to take on that challenge. Um, because I know things specifically like RCI has been just an incredible wealth of support for me specifically to take care of myself. You find a lot of how to be a better caregiver to the person you're taking care of, but not so much of how to be a better caregiver for yourself. So can you other t- caregivers? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, tell us a little bit about, so what, you know, kind of what are you learning through um, RCR? What, you know, kind of how is that supporting you? So it's, um, you get a coach and I think coach is the perfect word for it because they were like exactly what I needed at the time. I didn't, I wasn't even aware that I was needing that kind of support for myself. But once I started meeting with my coach, she would remind me, you know, hey, it's important to take care of yourself and just suggest like stress management techniques and things that you would never think of for yourself because you're so busy focused on the person that you're taking care of you. It's easy to neglect yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I really needed that reminder, especially during the time of COVID when everything you're just kind of everything's going crazy and you're just worried about taking care of your loved one and not so much thinking about your own health. So having that reminder was very nice. Um, Just reminding Mm -hmm. you, Hey, take a deep breath every now and then, you know, eat healthy, do some exercise. Kind of like you're mentioning as far as like doctors don't necessarily look at that side of caregivers, you know, but it is very important that caregivers take care of themselves so that they can continue to be effective for their loved ones. And so Jennifer, what are some, so, some of the stories that you're hearing during COVID from, you know, so many of the different coaches and the, the different family caregivers that the, the Institute does work with and does, does look to support? I think a lot of our caregivers are saying that the skills that they need as far as problem solving um, and engaging in or connecting with family and friends to build a support team are as critical now as ever. Caregivers have often been some of the most resilient and creative problem solvers uh, in this country. And I actually think there's a moment to say, well, we could learn so much from the way caregivers adapt to challenges. Mm -hmm. I think there are people who see that caregivers are existing in this challenging environment and could be an example in the way that they have adapted, they've handled, they've they've multitasked. I mean, when you listen to any caregiver story, you think, wow, you've got a lot on your plate and yet you're still doing an amazing job. And then what would caregivers need to make that juggle and all the stuff that they do have on their plate? What would what do they need to make it uh, to make it easier or as Jessica says, you know, to to make people not so afraid of it or even choose it um, willingly. I mean, I'll go with something Mrs. Carter reminds me all the time, which is most important thing you can do for a caregiver is to check on them. We all know at least one caregiver in our life right now. Even our caregivers who are on this call could probably think of one other caregiver and they could all just use somebody to just say you're there for them, not ask them what you can do for them, but just say that you're there. That's Mm -hmm. the best thing you can do. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you all so much for joining us today to have this really powerful conversation, hoping to bring some visibility to family caregivers who for, like you say, 53 million who for so long have been so invisible. Um, I'd also like to thank the New America Events team, the Better Life Lab team, our producer, David Schulman. Uh, Next week, we'll be talking about a really exciting and interesting behavioral science project uh, looking at work-life conflict and trying to design interventions to uh, ameliorate it and, and how that's translating into the era of COVID. So in the meantime, wash your hands, stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week.